When the authorities finally did open the door to Anthony Tote's home in Celebration, Florida, they immediately smelled that unmistakable stench of decay. Anthony told them the kids were sleeping over at a friend's house and called out his wife's name like she might appear at the top of the stairs. What they found then was the entire family dead in the master bedroom, the youngest child so decomposed that they didn't recognize her as a human at first. This is the story of Anthony Tote, the Disney dad who killed his entire family and lived with their corpses. Hi friends, I'm Katie, and this is Katie Does Crime. When I think of Disney World, I think of how Walt Disney designed it to be the happiest place on earth, completely safe and pristine, with a smile on every cast member's face. I fondly remember the perfectly timed smellitizer machines that waft the scent of cinnamon and sugar toward me in the park to make me crave a churro. I know that Disney's manipulating me a little bit, and I'm not complaining. So the idea of Celebration Florida, the planned community near Orlando developed by Disney, appeals to me just a little bit, I'm not going to lie. Sitting on 11 square miles right in Disney World's backyard, Celebration is meant to look like the American dream come to life. A small town with manicured lawns and houses that come in exactly six styles, with no more than two cars in the driveway, and a gathering in the fake town square with all of the neighbors for the Posh Pooch Festival. They even cover the town with fake leaves and fake snow to signal the turn of the seasons. So quaint. Maybe a little creepy, but quaint. And that's exactly where today's story takes place. Born on September 29th, 1975, Anthony Tony Tote moved his family, 42-year-old Megan, 13-year-old Alexander, 11-year-old Tyler, 4-year-old Zoe, and Breezy the dog to a three-floor rental home in celebration from Colchester, Connecticut. Megan would homeschool the children there. They signed a lease in May of 2019 for almost $5,000 a month. He had what seemed to be a thriving physical therapy business in New England, but Megan, his high school sweetheart, suffered from Lyme disease, and family friends said Florida's warm weather made her illness more manageable. An uncle said Megan had been super excited to move the family to the Disney World area and believed that it was going to be a fun time for everyone. But Anthony was revered by his patients as a soccer coach to his kids and the kind of guy who would buy expensive specialty equipment for the office if it helped him serve his patients better. So he would spend his weekdays at his practice and then he'd fly south to spend weekends with his family, ever the selfless family man. But things weren't as shiny as they looked from the outside. Anthony had taken out a series of short-term loans with high interest rates to the tune of $100,000 and he'd started billing the insurance companies of his patients for work he'd never done. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, along with the FBI, began investigating Anthony for healthcare fraud in April 2019. One patient said that she was positive her children received physical therapy twice a week, as they had for years, but when she looked at the records the clinic kept, they were completely falsified. Anthony claimed to have provided service to the children three, four, five times a week, when one received a treatment, according to Anthony's records, so did the other one, even though they had completely different needs and abilities. Even when the kids moved away, they continued to supposedly use Anthony's services. He told one patient that she was on the friends and family plan when she asked about needing to pay her deductible. He said that he'd just take whatever her insurance company paid him because, of course, he was secretly way overbilling them. One day, when the office was closed, Anthony billed Medicaid for 36 hours of physical therapy treatment. 36 hours in a 24-hour day. 
He's a hard worker, that Anthony. In November 2019, agents raided Anthony's office, where he admitted that he was the one doing the billing there and that he had, you know, added some stuff to the insurance claims. He said he was living above his means, that his wife didn't know, and that he'd taken out personal loans to cover his expensive lifestyle, but then had to commit the fraud in order to cover those. Agents told Anthony to contact them when he had secured an attorney, and he promised to return to Connecticut with one in early December. But December came and went. Paychecks at the clinic started to bounce. The employees stopped coming to work. The office closed, and the authorities shockingly didn't hear from Anthony. On January 7, 2020, agents contacted Anthony's sister, who said she also hadn't heard from him, and that had inspired her to call the sheriff in Florida and ask that a welfare check be performed back on December 29th. Anthony had told her just before Christmas that the entire family was so sick they wouldn't be able to even talk on the phone, let alone travel, and she hadn't heard from him since then. When the officers found nothing suspicious at the house, she asked for the same treatment of the smaller condo the family also owned down the street but had outgrown. But again, there was nothing to induce probable cause to search the home. No one had answered the door. The last time anyone heard from the family was January 6, 2020, when a neighbor said she texted Anthony's wife to say there was an eviction notice on the condo's front door. Megan's phone had replied, okay, thanks but no one believes it was Megan who sent the message. From January 9th to 12th, more welfare checks were conducted, and now the FBI was also calling down to Florida for someone to get eyes on their man. The police found the door to the rental home locked and all of the blinds closed, mail in the mailbox, and the eviction notice for the end of the year still on the door. It seemed like no one was home, and yet the family minivan was parked just up the street at the condo. A neighbor offered up the key she had from watching the family's dog previously, but deputies declined to use it. On January 13th, agents from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services were staking out the home to serve a warrant and saw Anthony enter. So they called the local police and asked for backup. There were concerns over the welfare of the kids, with Anthony knowing that he was under investigation and not having contacted his sister in over a week. Deputies and federal agents knocked on the door to no answer, but then they found that the door to the house was actually unlocked. They just let themselves in. First, they smelled the decomposition, and then they saw Anthony trying to steady himself as he came downstairs from the second floor, trembling. There was a long scratch on his neck, blisters and cuts all over his hands. This is when he told them that the children were away at a friend's house and that his wife was upstairs sleeping. Entering the master bedroom, they saw a body wrapped in blankets, a black and blue foot sticking out. Two more bodies were on a mattress on the floor, the two boys. The oldest was still holding rosary beads in his hand. They searched for the daughter before realizing she was the small package wrapped in blankets at the foot of the bed. The family dog was also found there with him. All of the bodies had been deceased for a fair amount of time, the deputies said. When investigators went back downstairs, Anthony was shaking and could barely stand. He was taken to a hospital where he told paramedics he had downed Benadryl pills in an apparent suicide attempt. At the hospital, he confessed to the murders after being read his Miranda rights, but he also told police that his head was spinning a little and that he was in a fog right now. A judge later threw out his confession, saying that the Miranda rights recorded in the interview were inadequate and incomplete, even if Anthony had seemed willing to speak with them at the time. 
Luckily, he also confessed later two more times. Anthony was tried on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of animal cruelty after admitting to killing the family's dog, too. The jurors saw one of Anthony's confessions to police, where he said that he killed his family before Christmas, which explained the odd fact that there was no holiday tree and no presents in the family's home. And then after killing them, he said he just lived with their decaying bodies for weeks. He said he'd been too chicken to kill himself with a knife, and that he didn't want to wait the three days for a firearm permit, so that's why he tried to use the Benadryl on himself. In the confession, he said he stabbed the two sons, suffocated all three kids and the dog, and then suffocated his wife after she unsuccessfully tried to kill herself with a knife. His baby daughter, he said, only kicked and screamed for a few minutes as he rolled on top of her and then held a pillow over her face. Anthony said he and Megan planned the murders together in a death pact, but that she had left halfway through one boy's killing to go meditate downstairs. And the idea of this death pact actually does align with what Anthony's sister told police when she called in for one of her welfare checks. She said, My sister-in-law had made a comment that basically the world is ending on December 28th and nobody has talked to them. His sister called it a really strange situation and said there was something a little bit more that could be happening there. Anthony claimed that as his wife got deeper into her chronic illness, she became involved in a weird religion and started watching online videos that predicted an apocalypse. And he and his wife agreed that when the apocalypse came, everyone needed to be dead so that they could pass over to the other side. When her self-inflicted stabbing didn't work, Anthony suffocated her too. For salvation, he said. So there's one story from Anthony. The other, which he told via a letter to his dad from jail a week later, paints a very different picture. First of all, this 27-page letter is so self-serving. Anthony talks about how he just did everything he could to take care of his wife. You know, her mom had been the town drunk. He was always compassionately cooking all of their meals and driving the boys everywhere. And he had valiantly moved his wife to Florida for her health, even though he just renovated their Connecticut home almost single-handedly. And he couldn't even get a good price if he sold their business. So he just had to fly back every week to support his family because he and his wife were just so in love. And he could never say no when the boys wanted to be tickled. It was just the kind of man he was. In the letter, Anthony claims that his wife gave the children a pie full of Benadryl and Tylenol PM before suffocating them. He calls it a Benadryl pudding pie, which is somehow just the most redneck phrase to me, I say, as someone who grew up on a farm. He had been at their condo down the street, and they'd outgrown it, so he was doing some maintenance work and looking for a necklace that his little daughter was driving her mom crazy asking for. His wife had woken up pain-free that day, a rarity for her, and it had just been a wonderful day full of good vibes and warmed up leftovers. His tools weren't in the minivan as expected for the condo maintenance, so he had to backtrack to the house and pick them up, where he found his beloved boys playing basketball. They hadn't loaded the tools into the minivan like he'd asked, but he wasn't mad. He was a super dad. He sent them inside to enjoy the dessert they said mom was making, and Anthony went off to the condo again to do the manly stuff that men do. He fell asleep in the car there, though, and didn't wake up until the sun rose. He raced back home, and that's where he found the poisoned pie in the graham cracker crust. His wife told him what had happened, that she had killed the children all by herself to release their souls. So he puked, and then they prayed together. 
Then she drank a family-sized bottle of Benadryl and stabbed herself. Anthony said that when he confessed to police and took the blame for the murders, he was just covering for his wife. I love my wife still very deeply, he wrote to his dad in the letter. And it will be the hardest thing to sit there and tell everyone that it was her that did this when I was not home. I have forgiven her, he said, as I know she was chronically sick. Two years later, Anthony went to trial, and there are a couple of little tidbits that came out of it that are so interesting. It turns out that the word toad, Anthony's last name, means dead in German, and Anthony's lawyers said that shouldn't be mentioned in court. The prosecution was like, okay, weirdos, that's fine. The defense also said that the photos of the decomposing family should be banned because the bodies were so decomposed that the medical examiner couldn't even definitively rule their deaths as homicides. So like how the bodies looked and the fact that Anthony had been sleeping next to them for weeks didn't have anything to do with anything. The judge didn't agree. The defense argued that there was no way to prove that Anthony killed his wife and kids and that all the Benadryl floating around in this story makes his confessions invalid. But after a six-day trial in April of this year, Anthony was found guilty of all charges. The judge said, you, Anthony John Toad, are a destroyer of worlds. He was sentenced to four consecutive life terms in prison without the possibility of parole, and one year in county jail for killing the family dog. So why did Anthony do it? He told one detective that they bring their children into this world, they get to decide when they leave. The prosecution argued that Anthony wanted total control over the lives of his kids and wife. And Megan's aunt said that it's true. She warned Megan that Anthony was a control freak. Anthony said he would only call her incessantly when she was out because he was worried about his wife's health. The family was facing eviction from their home after that mispayment of almost $5,000, and Anthony was barely keeping his physical therapy practice afloat. His license had actually expired in September. And of course, the FBI was after him for fraudulently billing Medicare for work he didn't perform. When he was arrested, he owed money to over 20 different companies and creditors, totaling over $200,000. Anthony's lawyers have appealed his conviction, partly based on the fact that a discussion of his mental health wasn't allowed at trial. And in terms of mental health, I think one of the most interesting aspects of this case is that there's actually a family history of murder. When he was a four-year-old child, Anthony's mother was shot in front of him, but managed to survive with the loss of one eye. It turned out that the killer was a learning disabled former student of Anthony's father, who was a special ed teacher and a wrestling coach. And it was his father who had paid $800 for the attempted assassination. He served five years in prison, and he and Anthony became estranged. Anthony calls his letter to his father from jail a fragile olive branch and says he forgives his father for not being there to protect him that night in 1980 when his mother was shot. He says that if he can't forgive his father, he can't forgive himself for not being there to protect his family. How very generous of him. So what do you think? Did the impending end of the world drive this couple to commit murder together? Or was this another Chris Watch situation where a deadbeat dad blamed everything on his wife? Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.